Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm concluding Appalachia Month with Silas House. Silas is the nationally best-selling author of five novels and one book of creative nonfiction. His sixth novel, Southernmost, is out June 5th and has recently been selected as a Southern Living Best Book of Summer, an Indie Next pick, and a recommended selection of the Southern Independent Booksellers Association. Silas's work frequently appears in the New York Times and Salon, and has also appeared in Oxford American, Narrative, Garden and Gun, Newsday, and various anthologies. He serves on the fiction faculty at the Spalding MFA in Creative Writing, and as the NEH Chair at Berea College, and his honors include the Nautilus Award, the E.B. White Award, and the Appalachian Book of the Year. Southernmost focuses on evangelical preacher Asher Sharp and his son, Justin. As a flood devastates their small Tennessee town, Asher offers refuge to two gay men. After Asher's wife refuses to help them, Asher begins preaching tolerance and is removed from his church. At odds with his entire life, Asher takes Justin and flees to Key West, Florida, where he hopes to reunite with his estranged gay brother, Luke. Southernmost complicates often reductive narratives about Appalachia and about rural America generally involving religious zealotry, homophobia, and bigotry. These extremes exist, of course, but, as is usually the case, reality is more nuanced. Silas writes into this truth with empathy and understanding, as a gifted writer, a gay man, and a Kentucky native. In this conversation, we talk about the importance of avoiding simple narratives and romanticized versions of the places you love. We talk about growing into your identity and art's ability to help you do that, to overcome feelings that you are wrong or not enough. We also talk about the need to be apart from a place, physically or spiritually, in order to write about it, and why rural America is not an other, but a mirror. I never want to vilify it or romanticize it. I just want to talk about it as a real place in the universe and ultimately show how specific and how different it is from everywhere else in the world, but also how similar it is to everywhere else in the world. It seems like talking about and writing about Appalachia right now and in the past year or so sort of feels and means a lot more and something a lot different than it than it did before. And I wonder if you could just kind of talk about politically, you know, if that was anything that was on your mind when you started, if the story just kind of grabbed you first and then you sort of realized, you know, the issues that were informing it or did you set out to kind of write like a, a sort of issue book? Well, I did set out to write a book that dealt with issues, but I, I knew that the only way you could do that is to put a human story on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think when people talk about Appalachia or the South or just rural people, period, and they use all these generalizations, I think that's what my mind always goes to. I always think about the people I know. You know, I think about my parents and my aunts and uncles and my cousins and the people I grew up with, and I see their faces, and I think about their individual stories. And so I think the only way that you can really examine a big issue like this is to think about the human story. And so I just had to create characters who, you know, were part of this, that this was happening to. So in that way, I'm not writing a polemic. Instead, I'm writing about real human beings. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. And and so, you know, when people just lump 
everybody into this one kind of mindset, that's what drives me nuts. You know, I mean, the book is called Southernmost because mainly because it's uh, partly set in Key West, which is the southernmost point because that's where my characters run off to. But also because I'm I'm also alluding to the fact that I think a lot of America always wants to point to I don't know an 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 instance of racism or misogyny or homophobia or whatever, and they want to say, well, of course that happened in the South, and if those things happen in other regions, people just conveniently leave out where that happened. Mm-hmm. So it's like it makes it easier on everybody else if you just assume that all the bad stuff happens in the South or in Appalachia. And of course we just know that's not true. And so what I'm trying to say is I think while most Americans, while a whole lot of Americans think of the South or Appalachia or the rural as the other, I think of it as just a mirror. You know, I think what's happening in a rural place is really just a microcosm of the whole country. And, um, so in writing the book, I wanted to write every facet of of rural person and their reaction to, in this instance, um, gay rights or just gayness, period, or otherness, period. You know, I mean, the book's a lot about otherness, whether that be, whether that be being gay or just being the kind of little boy that is very sensitive. You know, it's all about otherness. Yeah, and I think the way that, um, you know, I loved I loved that idea of putting this boy, Justin, at the center of it, because then you get, you know, he has to, you, you sort of have to convey things in a way that he understands, or you sort of have to see his understanding too, which just kind of adds this other layer of it feeling so, you know, things seem so kind of obvious to kids like he you know he sees so clearly the things that are going on around him that everybody is kind of afraid to face head on exactly he also um he knows exactly who he is and and i think lots of times kids do know exactly who they are and then we sort of rub that out of them Mm -hmm. we erase that and that's one thing that his father asher in the book asher is not only trying to get him away from this household where he's going to be taught to discriminate against people. But he's also trying to preserve Justin's otherness. He's trying to allow Justin to be sensitive and to be different, you know, and to look at the world differently in a, in a household where he's not being encouraged to do that. Does that resonate at all with your experience growing up? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, I think that is the, uh, to a large degree, the American experience, if not the global experience of, you know, people trying to shape you into what society expects you to be. And and that's such a big part of the national conversation right now. And, you know, I just, I just believe that we should let people be. And if they're not, if they're not hurting anybody else, just let them be who they are. And we would all be so much happier. I guess that's the real thesis of this book to me. It was really cathartic for me to read the parts dealing with Justin and and his 
you know, that idea of, of kind of trying to, to blunt his senses a little bit, because I think, you know, I grew up hearing, um, so much like, oh, you're so sensitive. You're much too sensitive. And of course, then as a writer, that becomes such a strength, but you're, I, I was so used to seeing it as a bad thing. Absolutely. We are taught all the time, you know, to, to not be too sensitive, to not um, feel things too much, to not worry about things too much, etc. And so in, in a book where a preacher is, has finally started to feel real empathy for people who are not like him, I thought it was really important that he have a child who was incredibly empathetic, you know, just in a sort of um, what we should all be. And I think in a, in a large way, he's what we all start out as before the world numbs us and dulls us and, and jades us. And before, you know, too many people tell you you're, you're weird or you stick out or make fun of you. Yeah, and before the world teaches you all these social constructs, you know, right, whether that right. be about race or orientation or class or gender or whatever. You know, you've written for a middle grade audience a bit as well. What is it about that, that child perspective, do you think, you know, that adds something special? Well, I think it is. Um, I think you can get away with more empathy in a, in a child <laughs> character. And I mean, such a large part of being a writer, period, is delivering that empathy. I think that's one reason people read is because they want to see that. They want to be able to empathize. And so it's like it's sort of a shorthand when you have characters um, who are able to do that easily. However, it's really, really hard to write a child character. Mm. I think I've written outside my own gender, you know, outside my own orientation, et cetera, outside my own race. For me, the hardest thing has been writing outside of my age, specifically writing a child's point of view, because you walk this fine line of you don't want to be condescending to a child or, you know, um, come off as sentimental or, or all the, all the traps you can fi- uh, fall into. Right. Right. What was kind of the, the beginning of this book for you? If you can, I know that I know those sorts of questions can sometimes be unanswerable, but you know, did you, did you start with Asher? Did you start with the idea of like, you know, I just want to explore this, this kind of changing mindset. Well, I actually have a really solid beginning for this book. Most most books, I, that would be hard. But for this book, I was reading the newspaper one day, and there was this tiny little article or news snippet that just said something like, an amber alert has been issued for such and such. She was last seen with such and such on this date. Yeah, she has blonde hair, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just one of those little Amber Alert things with the license plate number or whatever. But the thing that struck me was that the child who had been kidnapped had the same last name as the person she had last been seen with. So I knew that it was probably, I mean, most likely some kind of uh, family dispute. And so, you know, as a writer, my mind just starts, what you really do as a writer is so what and how and 
you know, and why. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe this was her mother that kidnapped her. And if so, why? Maybe she was trying to get out of a bad situation. Uh Or maybe she's trying to punish somebody or whatever. You know, it could be anything. And so I wrote, I started writing that story about a woman who kidnaps her daughter. And as I went on, I, I thought that I could bring more to it if I switched it to a father who who has kidnapped his son mainly because we have so we have such different ideas about mothers and fathers for instance if if you see a news story about a mother kidnapping her child you you most people have a real different opinion about that than they do about a father kidnapping his child yeah. you know what i mean yeah it gets a little more complicated and uh, there are all these different layers. And as a writer, as a novelist, the main thing you want is as much trouble as possible, you know? Yeah. So that adds more trouble right there. And so at first, you know, I just knew that. And then I had to ask myself questions like, you know, well, what does he do for a living? Because that defines who we are. At first, he was a football coach because I really, in the book, I wanted to really challenge uh, gender role mm-hmm. things. So I thought, you know, football coach is like this ideal of a quote unquote manly man. And so I want to put this ideal or almost the stereotype of a man in this situation where he's having to father his child on his own. But as I went on, I I just there started being all these religious elements and I thought it would be more interesting, again, more trouble if he was a fundamentalist preacher. Um. And I knew I could do all kinds of things with that. For one thing, I was raised in a fundamentalist church, and I have real experience, real knowledge of that world. Um, Also, it allows me to look at religion in a really deep way. And I knew then that one thing I wanted to do in the book was show every facet of modern Christianity in the South, Mm -hmm. all the way from the, you know, really fanatical fundamentalist all the way to a really open-minded person who n- knows they believe in something, but they're not quite sure what that is. So I should say all the facets of belief, not just Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, and it does take a very um, a very kind of loving tone toward the idea of religion. You know, even, you know, there there's this particular church and these particular congregants who... Um, you know, see things a little too rigidly, but but that it, it's not trying to say that the problem is having a belief system. No, I never want to do that. I think that's just simplifying too. You know, I just I know too many, I know too many believers who are really good people, and too many non-believers who are really good people to to ever simplify any of them. However, you know, as a novelist, I'm portraying the real world, and so. I'm trying to show every sort of uh, of person, all the way from the staunch believer to the non-believer, and especially to look at that under the guise of them being Southerners or rural people. You know, no matter where I go in the world, if I tell them I'm from the South, and then if I would say I'm Christian, a lot of people would have an instant idea. They would think they knew what I believed in. Right. And they would probably be be mostly wrong, you know, because I'm somebody that's 
evolved a lot since my childhood and had many different iterations of belief and doubt and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we, there's so much uh, baggage for a word like Christian, for instance, or even believer. And so that's another thing I wanted to look at is these different um, levels of that or different um, ideas of that. So when, when, what time period was this that you started working on it when you saw that news item? Hmm. I guess that was about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I work on books in my head for a long time before I ever put words on the page. So even, you know, during that last 10 year period, I published you know, three or four books, you know, so I wrote other things, but I always had this in my mind. And, and then I started putting words down on the page, maybe, I don't know, five or six years ago. And, um, this book, um, I probably have spent more time on this book than any other book of mine. I rewrote it several times from uh, uh, several different points of view. Like I said, it was first from a mother's point of view. Mm-hmm. It was also written completely from the little boy's point of view at one point, only from the father's point of view. Now it's mostly from the father's point of view with these little um sections that are from mostly from the little boy's point of view, but almost omniscient mm-hmm. and one from the dog's point of view, which I love. Yeah, I love that too. <laughs> so you're doing a lot of, you know, that, that kind of pre-writing work that's, that's, you know, the book kind of cooking in the back of your head. Are you, I find that, you know, so much of what I figure out, I have to figure out by writing it down. And I've definitely heard, you know, Jennifer Haig said something very similar when I talked to her about that kind of first part of the process of just thinking things through. And and that's so foreign to me, the idea that, like, I get anywhere in my own head besides just being like, oh, I wonder I wonder what would happen when I started writing this down. Yeah. So what, is, what does that look like for you? Are you kind of starting to line up a plot or is it more, you know, character development kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I get this little fingernail idea of a plot in my head. Like the only plot that I had was a kidnapping. Right. That it's as simple as that for me. The plot is, and then I think I'm not going to. The plot will only build itself if I create the character. And so once I was able to create Asher, the main character, uh, then things started coming together because then you know other characters uh, begin to develop. And then I know um, while I was after I had started working on this book in my head, a devastating flood hit Kentucky and Tennessee uh, in 2010. I think it was 34 people died and, you know, lots of homes lost. Um, it, it, It was major flooding in Nashville in particular. And I just thought that would work really well. I needed a sort of biblical like event in the book, mm-hmm. you know, and then I heard Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell or one of them, you know, they're all basically the same uh, to say, saying that, that the flood was because we had taken prayer out of schools or because we had given the gays rights, you know, or some, mm-hmm. something crazy like that. And I thought, okay, that's where the novel starts. It starts with this, this flood and this idea that gay people are the reason for the flood. And that was just, that worked perfectly for what I wanted to do in the book. Um, 
I knew that I wanted to have this father going through some kind of shift in his beliefs because I had to ask, okay, why has he kidnapped his little boy? You know, those whys always lead to the real plot. And so I had lots of reasons. And then, then when I finally thought, maybe it's because, you know, he's changed the way he believes about something and his wife, she hasn't changed the way she believed. Um, and that was somewhat autobiographical, mostly because I had been raised in such a strict fundamentalist way and I had evolved on that. And I'm often at odds with the people in my family. And, you know, I, and we love each other so much, but we can't. It's so fundamental that we can't have, hardly have a relationship because for them, everything is about this kind of worship. Uh. And a very public sort of worship and something you say in almost every other sentence and et cetera, et cetera. And for me, that that my sort of belief system is very private. And so it just impacts everything. And again, there's that trouble that I needed. I think a whole lot of Americans are in that situation, especially right now. In a way, the book, you know, is sort of prophetic of being about these two people, Asher and his wife, Lydia, who they just they can't even have a conversation anymore because they disagree so strongly about what the definition of being a good person is. For her, being a good person is having uh, is identifying sin and then shunning that sinner to sort of tough love them into going the right way. Mm-hmm. He begins to believe that a good person is somebody that doesn't judge and lets people be, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think a whole lot of us are in that situation, especially since this election, where we have such different definitions of what makes us good people. Absolutely. And it's really it's really interesting then to think about how long the book was sort of cooking for you and and to wonder, you know, if it kind of just like this was the moment that like it needed to be written. Yeah. Now I feel really conceited to have said that it's <laughs> prophetic. Oh no, no, no. I don't mean that. I think, I mean, I think there's a lot to that. I think that that was part of what I was getting at with my first question. And I just think like, yeah. yeah, no, you didn't make me feel that way. I just, I <laughs> feel like, wow, now I've declared myself a prophet. Now what it is, is it's just the zeitgeist, you know, things happen like that. We see that so much in, in literature. It's weird how that happens, isn't it? Yeah. That literature is always reporting on things like that in, in such a strange way. And I, I was thinking about that too. Um, you know, you've got this, I'm looking at the the book right now, uh, the advanced copy and Garth Greenwell's blurb is on the front. And I just love this idea of this moment where, you know, we can talk about, you know, Garth, Garth also, you know, being a gay male writer from Kentucky to just kind of be able to like, have bigger conversations around that in a way that that haven't existed before. Yes, yes. And, um, and that's another phrase that people don't expect, you know, a gale, a gay male writer from Kentucky. Everybody assumes that, you know, all the gay people get out as soon as they turn 18. And yeah. people say to me all the time, how could you live there? You know, how do you survive there? And it's just this idea that people have in their heads that is not completely true. I mean, it, 
I personally have suffered much worse uh, blatant homophobia in New York City and Chicago than I ever suffered in Eastern Kentucky. Uh. Now, that's not to say it isn't there, and it's always there, but it's subtler, it's um, it's quieter, it's it's below the surface, it's it's different, um, but it exists everywhere. And so when people say that to me, their assumption is, you know, well, why would you live somewhere where it does exist when you can move somewhere like, I don't know, New York City, where it doesn't exist? And I'm like, well, because it does exist. <laughs> because it does exist, <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, this pivots the conversation a little bit, but I, I do feel like there is something about Appalachia that people can't understand why, why we all just don't leave. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think that everywhere is provincial. Mm-hmm. I was certainly raised to be provincial. My family taught me that everybody in New York City was rude and that if I went there, I would definitely, definitely be mugged yep. and left for dead. And there was also this whole thing, you know, where I was raised, people referred to rural places as God's country. Oh, yeah. My mom does that, too. <laughs> and that's this idea that, you know, that, that gave, as a child, that gave me this idea that, well, people who don't live in a rural place, they're godless. And, yeah. You know, and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, so there's all these notions. So I think that we all are provincial. The thing is, it's so widely accepted and so often done in the media and in just the culture it's okay to put down rural people and to generalize rural people in a way that you is not as accepted or as widespread to put down you know people mm-hmm. from other parts of the country um and so you know i just meet people all the time who have these misconceptions and i'm on one hand, I get kind of upset with them. I think, well, you could teach yourself better than that. But on the other hand, I know how they're pummeled with this information all the time, you know? Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And so have you, you've lived in Kentucky all your life? Yes, yeah. I have. That's what I thought, I, yeah. I've always lived, you know, uh, about less than an hour from where I was born. Uh-huh. Because I was just thinking, too, of when I, you know, because I did the classic thing of, like, I grew up in West Virginia and I moved to New York and was like, I'm getting the hell out of here and all of that. And um, Yeah, I think we're raised to leave. Yeah, you know? absolutely. However, although the culture was raising me to leave, my family was so adamant that we not be apart. Mm. Um you know, I mean, my family is just especially clannish in that Scots-Irish way in that, you know, I now live 45 minutes from my parents and they're just devastated <laughs> every day. They think I live, you know, they hate how far away I live. And honestly, I stay homesick, mm. even though I'm only 45 minutes away. That 45 minutes is a it's a real cultural mileage in a big big way because i live in this little liberal college town you know and it's so it's very different um 
so there is something about that we are raised to leave, but at the same time, there's this guilt associated with leaving. Absolutely. You do leave, then you you know you've gotten above your raising. Yep. You, you think you're too good to live there anymore, or or et cetera, et cetera. Aren't you fancy? Is is how I always describe it to people. That's what that's uh, that's the that's the expression that gets tossed back at me. You're used to a lot more when I first left. And people will also say, you know, well, why you should live in your region because so you could do something for it. And I mean, I know so many people who live here who do something for the region. But I also know so many people who don't live here who really <laughs> give back to the region. And on the same token, I know a whole lot of people who live in the region and don't do anything for it. Right. So, <laughs> you know, yep. there are lots of levels of service. I would love to hear your experience about uh, uh, something that came up on the last episode, which was with um, Karan Mahajan, who wrote The Association of Small Bombs. And he said something about growing up in New Delhi that really resonated to with me that, you know, he said that so much of where he's from makes him a writer and, and it is what builds his writing and, you know, where his stories come from. But he felt like he had to leave to become a writer and he really needed that distance to sort of see the place and kind of discover his interest in the place. Um, I, I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth by saying that, but that's certainly, that part's certainly true for me. And so I would love to hear you talk about that um, I mean, no, of course you've, you've traveled a ton, I know, but you know, where, what that is like for you having such a, you know, being so close to it all the time. Well, first of all, I do think that you can only report accurately on a place if you're apart from it in some way. Mm-hmm. But with that said, I, I think that can be physical or it can be spiritual as, as a gay person. I think I was always apart from it. Does that make sense? Of course. Like, I was always outside of it, even when I was totally within it. I always had, was able to step back from it and have that distance. Um, so I think that is the way that I was able to distance myself from it without physically leaving. Um and then, as you know, even when you do physically leave it, you never spiritually leave it. It's always there inside you, drawing you back. It's just such a part of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do think there's a the, the one danger that I think that sometimes happens when people leave the region is there's a little bit, sometimes it's easy to romanticize a place when you're away from it. Yeah. Sometimes it's easy to remember the hard parts. Sometimes it's hard to remember the hard parts of it. You know, like I said, I'm only 45 minutes away and I'll go back to my hometown and I'll think, God, I love this land. And I, I love the specific accent of this community. And I love the way that they interact. I love the way that, you know, people uh, love on each other here in a different way. And the way people sit around in the dentist's office and talk to each other in a different way. And, you know, those little specific things. Mm -hmm. But then when I'm there for more than one or two days, I start to feel some of the oppression coming back. The oppression of everybody knowing who you are. Mm -hmm. Or the oppression of everybody knowing your whole history. or Or the oppression of everybody knowing, for instance, that I'm gay. Instead of having some a little more anonymity. 
<laughs> in a different band. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was such a huge thing for me when I first moved to New York, that idea that because, you know, you can't go to the grocery store without running into, you know, everybody you've ever met and they've known you since you were a kid and your parents have probably known each other since they were kids. And to have that kind of absence of like, I, I, of course, can like intellectually see what's appeal, you know, all of the things that are appealing about that, but it always felt so stifling to me. Um, yes. And so to be able to like just walk down the street and not know anybody I was like encountering was just magic to me. Right. So, I mean, I guess the thing is, is there are pros and cons to staying and to leaving. Absolutely, yeah. And, <clears throat> but I do think that you can only really capture a place if you love it and hate it. And, I mean, earlier I was talking about how there's homophobia everywhere and, and racism everywhere, uh, misogyny everywhere. But when you are from a place, and especially when you have gestational history in that place, where, you know, generational, your family goes back generations, you are more aware of the specific problems of that place, mm -hmm. you know? And so you are going to realize what's wrong with it in a different way. Um, and so that's what I really try to do in my writing is I never want to vilify it or romanticize it. I just want to talk about it as a real place in the universe and ultimately show how specific and how different it is from everywhere else in the world, but also how similar it is to everywhere else in the world, you know? Yeah, like, that, that resonates for me a lot. When you, you know, when you sit down one-on-one -on -one with people and you talk to them, your similarities almost—I mean, I, for me, in my experience, they all always outweigh our differences. Mm -hmm. And so, that's what's interesting to me. I'm never really writing thinking so much that I'm writing the Appalachian experience or the Southern experience or the rural experience. Instead, I'm thinking I'm writing about these characters, and they happen to live here, right? where they live is having an impact on their lives I think the characters must come first they, they are a result of the place um, but they're the most important thing for me are you thinking about who's reading you and where they are at that point not really I mean I, if I ever think that I'm just thinking I have to write this character as a real human being that's all that I really care about that is that other people will find this character to be realistic and interesting and frustrating and complex and memorable. You know, that's all I really care about. Um, I think it's sort of a waste of my time to worry about that because I have no control over who, into whose hands the book is going to end up, you know, so it's not like I want, I'm thinking I want to make this accessible to everybody. I don't think that, but I also don't think I, I just want to make this accessible to this particular group. I just try to write the book that I want to read and that's about it. Yeah. I think, you know, it's such a, it's such a kind of go-to piece of creative advice to make the thing that you wish exists. But I, I think that is really what it comes down to. That's really all you can do. I mean, if you, 
I think if you start trying to write by a formula or if you think, if I do this, this, and this, it'll be an award-winning bestseller, right. then it's be a total piece of shit, <laughs> you know? Let's talk a little bit about um, your actual writing writing routine, as a, if, if there is such a thing. Um, I know you have the, that great essay from the Times about... Um, you know, being still and kind of always being, you know, in a sense, writing every waking minute, as you put it. Um, but so I would love to hear you talk about that, too. But then just kind of how you fit an actual writing practice, uh, you know, pen to paper, fingers on the keyboard practice into your life. Mm -hmm. Well, I have always um, uh, been uh, writing while also having a full-time job, being a parent, taking care of my house, my yard, and everything else, you know, I mean, I'm just not the kind of writer who can go off on a retreat and and really get much done. Mm. I work better if I'm, you know, most most of my novels happen when I'm out working in the yard or I'm walking in the woods or I'm walking to work or I'm driving to an event. That's when my scenes are composed. I think a lot of that goes back to, like I told you, I was raised in a fundamentalist church, a holiness church. Our church services lasted three to four hours. We went to church three or four times a week. Um, and I wasn't allowed to take like Hot Wheels or my Star Wars action figures with me, but I was allowed to take a little notebook and a pen. And so I was, you know, writing these stories while around me, there was all this music happening and preaching and people running up and down the aisles and et cetera, et cetera. So I've always written amidst uh, chaos. And then my first novel, I wrote it mostly as a, I was a rural mail carrier. So I'm carrying the mail and, you know, I'm shoving mail into the box. I'm driving from the wrong side of my car. Um, from the pasture seat of the car with my leg thrown over the console. I'm usually eating too and smoking cigarettes and, you know, writing little snippets down in my books. Then when I get home, I'm writing, trying to get everything put into the computer while the baby's on my lap. So I've always been a juggler. You know, once I was published, then I had to write and also try to be on book tour and also try to have a job and also try to be you know, playing with my children. So I just sort of wrote while I was doing all those things. That's my process. It's a process of chaos. And some people, you know, they would find that to be absolute madness. For me, it just really works. Do you find that it lends you to sort of shorter, like I, I you know, I was struck in Southernmost, but there were there were quite a few very short chapters. And it feels like that lends itself very well to to that kind of squeezing it in method. I don't know. I mean, in other books, I have really long chapters. Yeah. I think that just happened to be southernmost um, because I I wanted it to be a really uh, a book full of motion because you know it's so much about being on the run, right? And so I really did want it to feel more like that. And also, it's more um, it's it's written more like a film. In that way, you know, I mean, if you think about a film, a film is a collection of all these really short scenes strung together. I just I tend to write in scenes. I, that is the way I write when I sit down to 
write, I write a whole scene and then I quit. Even if I have something else in my head, you, I sort of save that for my next uh, time of sitting down to write because I want to have something to go back to to write. I don't want to come to the blank page. Yeah, that uh, that's always a nice way to. Sometimes I'll leave myself a post-it note, like I write first drafts longhand, and will leave myself a post-it and you know yes. leave myself a half of an idea, and then I feel like it's going to be okay. <laughs> right. Are you writing, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of all of these different scenarios, you know, are you kind of scribbling things down in, you know, in stolen moments or, or work, maybe you don't work as much that way anymore. Maybe you, you get a little bit more time now, but um, is there then a period of like sitting down and digesting everything that you've put together in these kind of bursts? Um, for me, it's more like I go through my whole day and I have these things come to me. And then if I'm really lucky, I get an hour that day to sit down and put some of them up, some of it on paper. Mm-hmm. More often, it's that I go a couple of weeks without putting anything on paper. Um, in those cases, in those cases, I just keep it all in my head. And that's why I'm a total mess. You know, I never know where my car keys, my sunglasses or my phone or my wallet are. Those things are always, I'm always looking for. Right. Because, you know, I have all these characters and these scenes in my head and they're more important to me. I loved this idea in that essay that you wrote about going to the grocery store as, you know, as your characters and kind of thinking like, you know, in the in the case of Southernmost, like Asher kind of being suspicious of people because he's on the run and is somebody going to recognize him? And, and it just, it's such a full embodiment of the writing process in a way that I really love. That's one thing I love about writing, it, you know, and I think for the most part, writing is really, really hard and difficult. And half the time, I wish to God that I hadn't been born this way. But the the part that I love about writing is getting to live these different lives, you know, and getting to live vicariously through my characters. Mm-hmm. And being in this gas station, you know, when the state trooper walks in and there I am with my kidnapped child. And, you know, so then as a writer, I, I can go in a gas station and put myself in that scenario and look around at that room. And it makes the writing process so much richer because I have that scenario to think about. And then I can report on these details. Absolutely. What you said about, you know, half the time you wish that. you weren't born this way something that I really loved last summer uh which was my first summer at the Appalachian Writers Workshop at Heinemann was in Wendell Berry's uh big keynote he talked about how every morning like for the first like five minutes that he's out on the farm working he hates it every day but like that goes away after the first five minutes and he remembers how much he loves it. But still every morning he hates it. And I was just like, Oh, thank God. You know, it's just like such a relief that like, right. that you, that you're allowed to keep feeling that way. Cause so much of it is so hard and you want to love it for the process and you want to love it, you know, even if nothing comes of it and when it's going really well, that's very easy, but it doesn't always go very well. Yeah, I think I wonder sometimes if, you know, what my reputation is as a professor, because with my undergrad students, one of the first things that I teach them is how horrible it is to be a writer <laughs> and how how hard it is. And I do that because I want to dis- 
I want to get rid of this notion that writing is fun and it's just, it's only catharsis. Of course it's cathartic, but there's so much of this idea that writing is just therapy. And I'm sorry, but writing that is just therapy is not good writing. Writing can be therapeutic, but it cannot only be therapy. And so, you know, I want to get rid of that notion that writing is fun or it's a hobby or et cetera, et cetera. So many people have that idea. It's a, it's a craft and it should be treated very seriously and should be looked at, you know, as, as something that's difficult. I think the uh, creation is painful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It makes me think of, I think it's Margaret Atwood, somebody at a cocktail party, a surgeon says to her, Oh, you're a writer. You know, when I retire, maybe I'll take up writing. And she says, Oh, when I retire, maybe I'll take up surgery. Exactly. That drives me nuts. Yes. People say to me all the time, Well, when I have time, I'm going to write a book. Uh huh. And I'm like, Well, good luck with that because I've never had time. You know? Yeah. Nobody ever has enough time to do it. You, you only do it if you, you can't live unless you do it. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I think it's even that is not even, it's not necessarily for me even been the positive attraction of you can't not do it, but the negative attraction of I feel terrible when I'm not doing it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. How about over the course of your career, do you feel like it's gotten, I I know that easier is much too simple of a, it's a much too reductive of an idea, but you know, has have you kind of come to terms with the process of it, or you know, made no. peace with your process? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, it's gotten harder for me. How so? Um, in some ways, I think I, I have less time now. Um, I, and I don't quite understand that, you know, because I had small children, I had a. a, a 40 to 60 hour a week job, et cetera. Um, I don't know why I I feel like I have less time. Maybe it's just that I'm getting older and I'm more conscious of time. Uh Um, Also, I just think it's harder to some degree when you know what you're doing. You know, I wrote my first book and I had no idea what I was doing. All I was doing was entertaining myself. And, People still, that's the book that people love the most of mine, that they write to me about, that they talk to me about. From my point of view, I just wish I could take a red pen to that book, you know, and get rid of all the adjectives and adverbs. And, I mean, my editor did a beautiful job on that book. She really knew what she was doing. But I guess every writer feels that way about their first book, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but people really like, <laughs> really like it much more than I do. So to some degree, I think there's some freedom and beauty in, in just having um, gone into it, not really knowing what I was doing. And since then, you know, I've, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't have a, any kind of writing class until my third book was about to be published. I got my MFA with my third novel. Um, and so I do feel like I know a whole lot more about the craft now. Um, but for some reason, it's harder for me. What made you decide to get your MFA at that point? 
I wanted to know, well, that's complicated. For one thing, when you have an accent like mine and you are asked to speak at universities all over the country, you, I had such an inferiority complex walking into those classrooms. And to be honest with you, I still, when I'm around a bunch of academics, I still feel inferior. I still feel negated. I still have other academics who openly uh, negate me because of the way I talk. I think that people aren't even conscious of how permissible it is to put down rural people and how often it happens. And so one thing is I wanted to I wanted to be able to go in there and have that degree. I knew that I was intelligent enough. And I wanted to prove that to them by getting that degree. Not that I thought the degree made me any more intelligent. I don't mean this in an elitist way. But in some way, I wanted to be able to put that in their face and say, see, I earned this terminal degree and um, just like you did. And so, um, you know, that gets so complicated when you're talking to a rural person. I mean, I was, you know, um, for somebody who was raised in a, in a trailer and, um, I, the first person in my family to go to college and et cetera, et cetera. I have a big chip on my shoulder about that. And so I wanted to, I wanted to get that degree. I also, I just wanted to learn more about writing. I, I knew that there was more I could learn. I wanted to be around other people who loved literature. Um, I had friends of mine who had gone through this program, the Spalding University MFA in Creative Writing, and I saw them really blooming. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get a job in a college. I wanted to be able to work um, as a writer, you know, and have a, a permanent job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think I, I wasn't conscious of all of that before I got my master's degree, but I certainly became very conscious once I got there, what a chip on my shoulder I had about mm-hmm. where I came from and the, the level of education that I had. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, every time I'm in a faculty meeting or something, you know, and it comes to me to speak, I know that I'm as intelligent as other people in the room. I I mean, I don't think I'm more intelligent, but I think I'm as intelligent. But there's still, the whole time I'm speaking, there's still that doubt in me thinking, thinking a whole lot of people in here think I'm dumb because of my accent or because they know where I'm from, Um, just because I've encountered it so much, you know. So it's something that never leaves you no matter what. I would be curious, too, to hear your opinion on um, this is something that Rebecca Gale Hall and I talked a lot about when she was on the show, this idea that we both had grown up with in, in our different ways that art wasn't work and creative work wasn't work. And yeah. and so this kind of idea of like what you want is is silly and frivolous and pretend and you can't have it. Yeah, I think for me, though, it. Um, that was more something just that the larger culture taught me uh-huh. that art wasn't as important as um, 
Well, it definitely, you know, in the culture I grew up in, for instance, art definitely wasn't as important as sports, mm-hmm. for instance. And it wasn't as important as hard labor, like working in the coal mines or being able to fix a car, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in my family, even though they didn't quite understand me wanting to be a writer, they were absolutely supportive of that. I was not raised around people who read anything other than the Bible or magazines, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, they were by no means illiterate people. Uh-huh. Um, they read all the time, but they didn't read novels uh-huh. or, you know, anything like creative nonfiction or anything like that. They read the newspaper, the Bible, uh, religious books. But they really, really supported me being an artist, always. Everybody in my family. You know, I had an aunt who went to, I think the furthest she went was like sixth grade. Um, and she had two books. She had Gone with the Wind and Peyton Place. Mm. And, you know, um, that was the only two books she had. But she bought me my first typewriter. She was always encouraging me to be a writer. Everybody in my family was. They all came to anything I did, you know. Um, my my first experience as a writer was for 4-H. I really sort of grieve that 4-H isn't as widespread as it was when I was a child. I could have never, you know, now I go and speak in front of an audience of a thousand people and I don't think a thing about it. And it's only because of 4-H that I'm able to do that. Because I think it's kind of making a comeback. I don't know. My one of my my best friend at home, she's got two little boys and they're they're big in 4-H and it's really popular now, right. she said. Right. And, you know, most of my friends, they were like in 4-H, they were showing their cattle or they were, I don't know, building birdhouses, whatever. And for me, 4-H was all about the speech competitions and doing demonstrations. And I was so terrified to speak in front of an audience. And so I owe that to 4-H. Yeah, no, that that resonates a lot with me, too, what you said. Like, my, my family is super supportive, maybe not in a you know, also, also not big readers, uh, stuff like that. But, but it, it, you do kind of, you know, we come from this larger culture that really, that really does prioritize hard labor. And and so mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, you, you, you can, you can feel inferior all on your own. You don't need anybody to, to tell you. Right. right. Um, yeah. I mean, they were so supportive. They were always been so supportive at the same time. Um, you know, I like if I have for about six years, I was a full time writer. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything else. I didn't have any other job. I supported myself totally as a writer. And, um, I, you know, I was very strident about having writing hours during that time. And, and people in my family didn't take that very seriously. Right, you know, right. like <laughs> if my aunt needed to go to the doctor and everybody else was like at their nine to five job that day. Then it was just, you know, totally acceptable to call me and say, well, you don't have to work. So you can can you take her to her chemo today? You know, yeah, you know, because for them, that just wasn't the same thing. I was able to take off work anytime. Um, and that was that was bothersome that that it was seen differently that way. Yeah. Is that something now that you think was that an ideal for you to be only writing or, or do you actually prefer to have teaching and other responsibilities that kind of balance 
your your mental health out and your your writing time out um i need more time to write now yeah but i also yeah i also need i need those other things going on for me i mean there's so many of my writing students who keep me going you know and uh, even teach me things about writing and um keep me excited about it you know i mean when you're working with younger writers to to see their excitement and their their hope and all that it it really is inspiring you know it's funny i was editing robert gipe's episode this morning and um i feel like we kind of turned into this ad for the writer's workshop at Heinemann. But then I, I see that, you know, I, I revisited this essay and noticed that you said um, that you found yourself as a writer, you know, at this gathering. And, and I wanted to just ask you really briefly, you know, cause that, cause last summer was my first summer there and that did have such a huge impact on me, you know, as somebody who was kind of making this pivot and feeling very scared and very inferior about it and to kind of be accepted in this place and feel like I belonged there was very, was very powerful. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about your experience there. Well, for me, it was a place where I felt totally accepted because, you know, where I was from, even though I had that support from my family, I couldn't sit down and talk about Thomas Hardy with one of my cousins, you know, um, and so then I went to Hyman and I could, I could talk about Willa Cather or Thomas Hardy or Alice Walker with somebody at the Appalachian Writers Workshop, but I could also talk about a pocket knife or moonshine, you know? Yeah. So it was like all of my worlds came together there. I think that's what's so great about it is that. There's no caste system there either, you know. Everybody's on an equal playing field. And, you know, one thing I love about the Appalachian Writers Workshop is everybody has to wash dishes. Yeah. And so, you know, there you are and you're washing dishes with Lee Smith or, you know, uh, Wendell Berry or whoever's whoever's on staff. Um, And you all are talking about literature, but you're also talking about fishing or you know whatever i think that it's uh it it's just so important to have a place where you can totally be yourself in every way and for me that's that place uh what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now the first thing my mind goes to is the day before yesterday i got a letter in the mail from this little boy in the eighth grade who read my uh book eli the good and he told me that, you know, he he understood the world in a new way. And he thanked me for writing the book. That is real creative um, satisfaction for me. A few days ago, I taught a little workshop in a high school, and they asked me to just talk about identity and and just sort of go with the flow of the classroom and whatever, however people want to talk about that. So we talked about that every in every way from one person who identified about body positivity mm-hmm. uh, to an, a young man who talked about he wanted to come out as an artist. 
he was known in his high school as an athlete, a great athlete, but he wanted to come out and to everybody and say, you know, I want to be a writer. You all only see me as a, as a basketball player, but I love literature. And that was a big thing for him to admit that. Yeah. All the way to this uh, young woman who came out to us all in the most common way of coming out, I guess. Uh, you know, she told us she was from a really homophobic household and that she really feared her parents finding out. But but she was gay and she was able to say that in a safe space. And that was such creative satisfaction for me to, you know, I sit there and thought, God, how lucky I am to be a writer who gets asked to come speak to people about writing. And then they can feel safe with me enough to, to announce something like that. It was so incredibly moving. And, you know, I talked about how hard writing is, but moments like that make it so worthwhile. To, and I guess what I'm only realizing in this moment is that creative satisfaction for me is seeing my writing being some small part in a person empowering themselves. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. because I think for. I spent so many years trying to empower myself to be able to accept who I was and to rectify being gay, but also having this strong belief, you know, believing in something so strongly, even though everybody that I knew who believed in that too were telling me I wasn't worthy of that. Right. And for me, that's what Southernmost boils down to this one moment in the book I don't want to give too much away, but there's one moment in the book where a character says, you know, all my life you all told me that I wasn't worth anything and that I wasn't worthy of God, but there was this little fire in me that you all never could put out. For me, that's that's what the book is all about. And so I was able to witness this moment, you know, with this young woman, really a girl, you know, she's 16, who was able to say that, you know, I have all these people who don't want me to be who I am, but I'm telling you all that I am. And so it was like she was epitomizing the book for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's so powerful. And I mean, it's so, you know, it, it's 100% true, everything that we were saying about about fiction as empathy, but but also it's so important, especially at that age, to be able to, like, see yourself reflected back to you. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, you know, and she said, you know, this is, this is a, I finally have a safe space to say this. And well, the only way I had made it be safe was that I was like her, you know, and yeah. the only way I had made it safe for that basketball player to say, I want to be a writer is because he, he recognized that in me too, you know? And so that is so important to just to be visible and to be present. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. 
Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.